Brown putting two in a brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. This is a weekly Monday appearance. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Seth Smith, Gerard Dyson, and defense and specifically some very excellent charts or graphs or charts that are available now by way of StatCast at BaseballSavant.MLB.com. These are charts and graphs which plot time, hang time, versus distance traveled by a fielder. Gerard Dyson, it will not surprise you to learn, is well acquitted by these particular charts and or graphs. Seth Smith, less so. Seth Smith, less so. That is addressed by Dave Cameron. Just the excellence of these graphs. Also, Brewer Zips, the Milwaukee Brewer Zips, will release some fan graphs on Monday. Here's what they reveal. While the Brewers have zero players projected to produce more than three wins, they have 20 players projected to produce one or more wins. More than the Cubs, more than the Giants, more than the Nationals, all playoff teams 2016. What does that reveal about the Brewers? Do we discuss the Eric Thames or Eric Thames or Eric Thames projection? We do briefly, I think. I think we do briefly. Finally, Cameron departs from his normally stoic self and takes a tender moment, tender moment to recognize the accomplishment of this podcast, recent, the recent accomplishment of this podcast, 700th episode. That's something that most people can't do. Heartwarming stuff. Like the end of Old Yeller is how everyone will probably feel about it. All of that in what's to follow. What's following most immediately, however, is a spit is a message for the monster. It is a it is a message for the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. What is SeatGeek? SeatGeek is an application and or website that allows you to buy tickets online. What kind of tickets? Tickets at a cut rate, at the cheapest rate on the internet. How do they do it? What what SeatGeek does is to pull tickets available all over the internet. Uh, they they pull them, they aggregate them into one place, allowing users, allowing customers, clients to get the best deal possible. Even better, what SeatGeek does is to assess a grade based on value to every seat or that is available for a concert or a sporting event so that like a 21st century general manager or an, er- an early 21st century general manager, users can exploit the ticket buying market. And best of all, SeatGeek, of course, for them, honesty is a byword. Unlike StubHub, unlike StubHub SeatGeek never assesses mysterious fees or other sorts of fees that are less mysterious and yet nevertheless assessed at checkout. You understand what I'm saying. And In any case, what the bottom line is, if you come to the bottom line, the bottom line is that you are entitled to a rebate as a listener for having endured this. To collect your rebate, what you do is you download the free Seeky Gap, you go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. Fangraphs SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today at your nearest possible convenience. Convenience. With which utterance the introduction has ended. We now move on to the conversation, to our conversation for today. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now.
what, you gonna you have to mention something? Well, I was gonna ask if we can use Troutian because we use Ruthian. That's become like a standard baseball term. I think we should start using Troutian. What well, Troutian would describe someone who was the the best player through age twenty five. Well, Troutian could just mean like the best, right? Like we use Ruthian as like the best. Like you're you're having a Ruthian season. Like Trout is you know modern day Babe Ruth without the pitching, I guess. But the right. So mo- I think most people's last names you can add the I A N to the end or something or E A N, and that, yeah. that's the adjectival form. So Stulian would be taking a nap during the afternoon. The but it's it's difficult for some names. Cameronian? Would you be Cameronian? Cameronian, maybe? Cameronian? Yeah, that, right. Cameronian, yeah. That yeah. would be to, what, say something mean to you? Well, it would be to make it to – it would be to draw a hasty conclusion. <laughs> right, yeah. Think, <laughs> to have uninformed opinions. Yeah, but, but to state it – to state it very strongly. That's right. Have very loud. I think that's actually a Bayless CN. Yes, but people are compensated very well uh, for doing that. I am compensated less well than Skip Bayless. We less really well. need to but do something with like that. You also use. I think you probably do employ more reason in your comments. I would hope so, because he yeah. implies none. So it's very, again, it's very profitable for him. I think that there is if if a if a person if a commentator. Uh, it comes to is 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 fine with becoming the heel. He's essentially a heel, right? That's a, he is a, plays a character to the to the point where like no nobody likes him, or, or perhaps they think they don't like him. But I have to assume he's playing a character. Yeah, I mean, at this point, there's no way he's not just assuming uh, the role of guy who says insane things. Do you, do you, I mean, do you, I, who was I speaking with at some point? Uh, I don't know who was, but he, whoever it was said he, the idea of playing the heel appealed to him. And I don't, I don't think it was ever appealed to me. I think I'm probably too desperate for people's affection. But I could see where if you were particularly secure in yourself, um, then you, you might be able to play. Does that ever appeal to you? No. I think the idea of like saying disingenuous things is, goes against what I believe. Like I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of like being honest. And I don't like the idea of trying to get a reaction out of someone uh, by saying something that I don't believe is not something that I would enjoy. Right. Okay. Um, let's. I want to uh, begin with a moment of praise and wonder, and uh, it concerns something which uh, you cited in your most recent post, your post from Monday afternoon regarding the uh, the Mariners as the Royals. But I also, I think I saw for the first time in Eno Saris's post. Regarding, I don't know who. I don't know who last week. Maybe Rajai Davis. That now I'm recalling now. Rajai Davis. These defensive charts from Statcast, yeah, from They're pretty Statcast, cool. Accessible by way of baseballsavant.mlb.com. Yep. Right. Yes. Uh, hang time versus distance. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've known for a long time is. Um, Essentially, if you want to evaluate a, def- a defender, what you want to know is how far did he have to go and how long did he have to go there, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. well, really what we care about. And we've tried to infer that from did he make the catch or not based on whether it's in the zone. But once you can actually measure hang time and distance, you don't really need the rest of it, right? Like, that that fixes the positioning issue. Um, and it really gives us a sense of, like, this guy can do this physical thing. It doesn't necessarily give us value, but it gives us – um, physical abilities, right? So we can look at like the Mitch Hanniger charts, which are the ones I put in the, the post about the Mariners defense and note that like 
this is a guy who could run, you know, 80, 80 feet in four seconds or something. Like, that's something that most people can't do. And he made several plays in that general range. And that suggests that perhaps uh, he might be a better defensive outfielder than scouting reports have suggested. Right. And then if you, if you add into that, so the, the thing we, I mean, it was it would have always been easy enough to calculate hang time, right? You could do that more or less manually, say from the time the the bat uh, hit the ball to the time when it landed. Yeah. So they've been calculating hang time in their defensive stats for a while. Distance was always the one that you didn't have. But distance, right, and also the starting point of the fielder, right, which is what you need to get distance, right. So if you if you calculate initial positioning and then you know where the ball landed, you can have distance. But if you don't have initial positioning, which when you're watching on video, you generally don't have initial positioning of the outfielders, it becomes difficult to say how far the fielder ran. Right now, now I do notice at baseball savant, perhaps I have not navigated the site correctly. While we do have access, it appears as though as a public, as a member of the public, I have access to these excellent charts. I don't necessarily have access to the raw data. Is it uh, possible that I'm just not looking in the correct place? No, they haven't put that up yet. Uh, right. According to Darren Willman, Tom Tango, and Mike Petriello, who are kind of the StatCast team over at MLB.com, along with Matt Myers, but uh, Tango and Mike and Darren do most of the tweeting about StatCast, is they're going to be putting up some leaderboards. Uh, so that'll be up there where you'll be able to sort some stuff. But I think in terms of like actually uh, pulling in like the XY data, it's unlikely they're going to hand us that. For everybody, yeah, okay. Because yeah, I could, I, yeah. I can go through and just count this manually. You could, uh, like, yeah. Yeah, like I could tell you, I mean, you know, like I have Gerard Dyson's um, time and distance chart versus Seth Smith's right now, right? right. Yeah. And I could tell you, uh, just by virtue, just by examining it with my eye, Gerard Dyson's, unsurprisingly, is more impressive. Yeah. Um, I see, for example, there are four... Balls that should have that are typically regarded as easy that Seth Smith did not catch, and there are zero uh, of, of which that's true for for Gerard Dyson. However, if I were to tell you the the denominator looks similar, but I can't guarantee that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be one of the interesting things is like um, whether the difference between a great defender and a not great defender is the case with Dyson and Smith. Is it that they the difference in highlight reel type plays, which I think is generally how we evaluate defenders with our eyes is the number of like sprawling diving catches we make them we see them make and if we they make a lot of those then we're like man this guy's a really good defender or if it's just like with the Hanager chart which I pointed out like he made every single play that was considered routine or you know easy um and if if that's really the mark of a good defender is they just don't let balls fall in I think it's probably more that honestly like I think you're going to have some overlap where the guys who are really good at getting to everything also can go further but my guess is when we kind of flush through all the data, we're going to find out that the real, maybe not the entire difference, but a good chunk of the difference between, uh, you know, premium and below average defenders is the number, the percentage of easy plays they make. Right. You know, you know what I, you know what I like about this too, uh, having this data available, at least in the visual form, the way it is, is because you, it, it still does not negate the viability or the utility of scouting type data, right? Or scouting type information. Because if I look at Gerard Dyson, I see that he's good at getting, he can go a certain distance in a certain amount of time. But, um, but that, that there's still things that matter here, right? Like, is this, is he doing it because of 
pure speed, or is it is it a question of his uh, first step? Is he taking you know is he taking like a very um, uh, efficient route? And then or in in then somewhere in between would be acceleration too. So there's still these uh, there there are sort of still these variables that that um, you know that players might possess different amounts of. I think Dyson's probably the complete package, is my guess. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that we refer to like scouting type data when in reality a lot of what's considered like scouting data is just scouts being data collectors with inferior tools, right? Like home to first time, like. That's a number that you get from calculating like how you know I held the stopwatch and then I hit it twice and or three times or whatever and that gave me a number and then I record that and over time I get a bunch of home to first times and we think it's you know one of the things that stabilizes very quickly so we don't have to record it ten thousand times but we figure out like this guy can go from home to first in this amount of time that's considered scouting data but if you tracked it with like a camera that would be considered analytics data even though it's the exact same thing right so like I think what we're doing with Statcast and and kind of this tracking technology is essentially quantifying things that we previously made humans do and taking some of the air out of the system, right? Like you can't watch every player's home to first time and you can't always hit the stop watch at the exact same time. So we're just removing kind of the the potential human error involved in the process. Uh, but this is, you know, this is data, right? And we've always just had scouts collecting data. And so instead of saying this is scouting data or this is analytics data, it's all just data. The question is how we're collecting it. You know, and right, in some some forms of data, humans are probably better at collecting than more technical instruments, right? Some of them, some of them depend on it. And I, I would reference... Um, I would reference I th- someone. Someone cited this recently. I far, I'm sorry, I don't know who cited it, but there was a piece in Business Insider. Does this, does this sounding familiar? No, I mean, that's that's an article. That's a website that exists. Yes, it is. Uh, there's a piece in that. Look, it appears as though it was written by Richard Filoni. I think I'm saying this right. Uh, it was a sit down with Michael Lewis, in which Lewis, uh, I think, probably in a uh, promoting <clears throat> in an effort to promote his um, his book, The Undoing Project. Uh, was discussing um, he was discussing w- how scouts uh, could better how they could be better be used um, and he said uh, well, should, I don't know should I read some of it to you yeah. uh, if you want to okay let's let's try it uh, um, Filoni had asked him how could scouts be useful Lewis said I thought about this back when Moneyball was published Billy Bean he didn't ask for my opinion but I told him you've got this army of scouts and they're not doing what they should be doing he says they're not doing what they should be doing they're eyeballing the players and judging if they can be big league players based on small sample sizes the games they happen to attend uh, you get a much better picture of their professional potential when dealing with big body data what scouts should be doing is figuring out if these players have a drug problem if they have a difficult time living away from home if they have weird problems with their teammates, if they don't listen to their coach, or if they're hiding an injury, what you should do is basically hire a bunch of young journalists to go figure out who these people are because some of that information will be helpful. Uh, and so he essentially suggests that scouts should should be operating like journalists and that they will go out and it's data, but it's of a more qualitative sort that requires the judgment of the person who's collecting the data. Do you have any response to that, Dave Cameron? How about – could you supply a response to that because we're in the business of producing content right now? <laughs> so I think scouts already do that. I think uh, if Lewis doesn't know that scouts are already doing that, that's on him for not understanding that. That's actually a fairly large part of a scout's job is getting to know the player. I think if we replaced talent evaluators and with journalists, uh, I think you would see a different kind of 
impression being made on the people who are there to evaluate them. Like if you know that someone has come in to, as like a consultant to evaluate your work and you see them standing around, you're going to work differently when that guy's around than if you think that guy is there evaluating uh, your actual physical skills, right? So like if you if you see a scout and like, oh, this guy can help me get drafted higher because he's going to watch me throw and he's going to watch my curveball and he's going to check my bat speed. Like these things are physical things that you're not necessarily like – Generally, if you're going to get drafted, you're probably pretty good, and you want to show these things off. You're like, yeah, I'm going to throw 97 miles an hour and, and throw a wipeout slider, and this guy's going to be impressed, and they're going to draft me. Versus if you know that the guy's like a personality checker, you're, you're like, oh, the personality police are here. I think I'm going to put my weed away now. <laughs> like, You're going to uh, respond differently to a talent evaluator than you would to a journalist who's trying to find out why you might not succeed based on your personal habits. So I think uh, replacing talent evaluators with you know, investigators, it's probably not a great idea. And I think um, I agree with Lewis's uh, kind of um, sense that this is probably the most val- one of the most valuable things scouts can do. Not that, like, their insights on a player's talents aren't also valuable, and I think we should be wary of saying that they shouldn't be doing that. But I think we should acknowledge that this is an area where scouts can add information that can't be gathered in another way. Like, we can't track mana players motivation or his work ethic or his uh, drug problem like those are things that we can uh you know quantify with a radar so the, the scout is the kind of the first line for that information and you know especially generating relationships with coaches um who are going to have numerous players over years like that's something that can be really valuable and so i think you want people with the credibility to befriend coaches and get reliable information and that's probably not going to be a personality police journalist Okay. All right. I'm glad you responded to that. We're going to move on. Uh, we we have mentioned Gerard Dyson already, Seth Smith already. Mitch Hanniger. I threw out Mitch Hanniger's name. You threw out Mitch Hanniger, and it's because, uh, well, those are all. So some, the, all those players either have recently been or or uh, are now members of the Seattle Mariners Ball Club. It's relevant because, uh, what, over the past week? Was it over the past week? Within a span of two days, I believe. No, Friday. They made both trades on Friday. Right. The Mariners traded both – uh, they traded Seth Smith to the Baltimore Orioles for Giovanni Gallardo, uh, causing uh, causing at least one uh, uh, writer for Fangraphs <gasps> to scratch his head. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like that trade. And then uh, they followed up with a trade to the Kansas City Royals, trading uh, uh, sending Nate Carnes to that team for Gerard Dyson. Yeah, I like that trade more. Right. So in total, there's some logic, but uh, what has happened really is uh, you could call it a trade of Seth Smith and Nate Carnes for Gerard Dyson and Yovina Gallardo. I, I, I mean, assessed that way, is this a good trade for the Seattle Mariners? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's like a dramatic improvement, but it certainly changes the team, right? So, like, with Smith and Carnes, you went from maybe guys who were individually valuable uh, in a sense. So you could look at Smith and be like, this guy can hit right-handed pitching, and he's not, you know, totally useless. And especially if you play him at first base instead of the outfield because the Mariners don't really have a good first baseman, this is a guy who they could really use in their lineup. And, like, Karn strikes a lot of guys out and has multiple years of control. And if he can figure out how to throw strikes or work deep in the ball games or become a dominant reliever, then this is a valuable piece. But when you look at the kind of the Mariners construction, you have Robinson Cano and Nelson Cruz kind of at the tail end of their careers probably, or in Cano's case at the tail end of his prime anyway. Felix Hernandez is in decline, Asashi Wakuma is 36, and who knows how much longer you've got him. This is a team that needs to win in the short term. So by exchanging Carnes and Smith for Gallardo and Dyson, the Mariners probably made their 2017 team a little bit better 
by betting against Carnes' future. Like, if Carnes figures things out, this is a bad transaction for the Mariners or a bad series of transactions because they'd give up a valuable young pitcher, multiple years of control, low cost when they don't have enough pitching as it is. Um, so essentially they said, okay, we're going to exchange Carnes' potential future value, which we don't necessarily believe in, uh, for an out- outfield upgrade going from Smith to, to Dyson because Dyson's a better player than Seth Smith. So uh, if you think that the difference between Gallardo and Carnes isn't that huge in 2017 – which you could make the argument for if Carnes is a reliever or a four-inning starter. Um, even though Garrett not very good, maybe there's not a huge downgrade there. But Dyson makes them better in a year where they need to be better. And so I don't I don't think the Mariners went from like an 82-win team to an 88-win team. This isn't like some massive upgrade. But it makes them a very different team and probably makes them better in the short term. It'll be interesting to see how with Martin and Dyson and Hanniger and how that outfield defense plays – whether there's some synergy here where you can say, okay, look, we have bad pitching, but like the Royals last few years, we're going to kind of hide that bad pitching with crazy good defense, whether that's actually going to be a better combination than if you had, you know, slightly better pitching, but then you were also running Seth Smith out there in the outfield and he was unable to make, you know, Chris Heston look good. Uh, Nate Carnes, uh, in both years, uh, he was with the Rays, or I guess the, the one main year he was with the Rays, he slightly outperformed. His uh, his fielding independent pitching uh, underperformed. He out. I mean, he that he outperformed it in this with the Rays in the sense that he allowed a lower BABIP. He allowed fewer runs than you would expect given his his FIP. And then uh, when he moved to the Mariners, he allowed more runs than you would have expected given his FIP. Right. So yeah, he ran a low BABIP with the Rays because they have a good defense. Right. And, and then uh, he ran a higher one with the Mariners. It, it yeah. is. It is, I don't know, it's not irony. It is delicious coincidence, maybe. Remember, perhaps it is irony, actually, now that I consider it again, that Gerard Dyson is the precise sort of player who might have helped Nate Carnes put up a better, a better, better numbers with the Mariners. Yeah, I mean, that's true in a sense, except for Carnes is also the kind of pitcher who's actually, um, maybe less susceptible to help from his defense because he gets a lot of walks, a lot of strikeouts, and a lot of home runs. Like, he's a, three true outcome pitcher, right? So this is not a pitch-to-contact guy who's going to get a huge, huge boost from having better defenders behind him. Obviously, everyone gets some boost, but the magnitude of the boost for a guy like Carnes is probably smaller. Um, and I think if you're looking at Carnes, really the big question with him is, is he a starter? And so like when he was with Tampa Bay, one of the reasons that he pitched well uh, is that they basically pulled him in the fifth inning of every start. Like They just didn't let him face batters a third time through the order, hardly ever. And then they traded him before people noticed, like, oh, this was basically a guy who went four to five occasionally innings per start. The Mariners uh, also realized fairly quickly that this guy is – not good at getting batters out the third time through the order or has not been good. We don't know for sure that this is a talent issue or predictive issue, but at least historically, Carnes has been atrocious the third time through the order against opposing hitters. So if he's really only a guy who goes four innings, can you make him a viable starting pitcher? Like, is that too taxing on your bullpen to have a fifth starter who can't get out of the fifth inning? Uh, I think most teams would probably say yes and say, this is a guy who, if he can only be good for three or four innings at a time, he belongs in the bullpen. Whether he wants to pitch in the bullpen apparently is an open question. Hey, what do we know about assessing – what do we know about predicting, I guess predicting or forecasting whether a pitcher will be good a third time and fourth time through the order? What do we know about that? Is it is it a pretty strong correlation between being good the first two times? And if, and if there are players who exhibit different skill levels 
in this? What are, what's the difference between them? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. Like, so I think Mitchell Lickman's written about this. He was kind of one of the first guys to point out the three true or the third time through the order penalty. Um, and I think he's noted that there doesn't seem to be a huge uh, variance in talent level among pitchers, that, kind of like Babbitt, right? Where like there's going to be some outliers. There's going to be some guys who, uh, you know, aren't exactly average at this, but there's not this giant spread like there is with like strikeout rate. Right? Where you have some guys at 40% and some guys at 10%. Um, so the spread in in ability in third time through the order, fourth time through the order is very is likely much smaller than it is with other places. But it doesn't mean it's zero, and we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, so I think with a guy like Carnes, when you have now a um, couple hundred innings of him being just really bad at this, organizations are going to be skeptical and say, you know, maybe this is a guy who doesn't work in this role. I think the other thing is we have like a selection bias issue, right? Like the guys who probably would be really bad third and fourth time through the order are pitching in the bullpen. So we don't have their data to be like, oh, look at this giant spread in talent between these pitchers because those guys get moved off before they have a chance to really be terrible uh, kind of later in the games. And so if Carnes is, you know, a reliever or if that's his best role, then perhaps the evidence that there's a big spread in talent for guys like him those guys aren't pitching in the rotation anymore, so we don't have that evidence. Right. And, you know, I, I want to dovetail with this quickly, just a brief aside. Eno Saris uh, wrote, a, wrote a cool piece last week. Uh, well, first he, he looked at the overall best pitches. Um, and when he says best pitches by result, what he means is typically a whiff rate and ground ball rate, right? right the pitches yeah. that, that looked at the best of those. And <clears throat> We're sort of talking about some of the uh, the intricacies here of, of pitchers generally and, and starters specifically. And uh, one thing that came up was when he looked at the best pitches thrown by starter, again, uh, by swing swing rate and, and ground ball rate, uh, almost no fastballs show up in the leaderboard. Yeah. And yet you see – a, a larger uh, you see a collection of pitchers with really good fastballs yeah. right so Corey Kluber who usually sits like 93 94 can throw harder than that uh, uh, he, his curveball was the best overall pitch um, there was Clayton Kershaw's slider there's Jake Arietta's changeup there's Noah Syndergaard Noah Syndergaard's uh, fastball to the best of my knowledge no it does not show up on the leaderboard at all and yet you have to say that a guy who can throw mm-hmm. who just sits at 98 yeah. yeah that you that that's probably some help i'm curious just for a comment on that the the relationship between these secondary pitches and of course um, the the relationship between secondary pitches and fastballs with another sort of footnote to that which is that there have been comments uh, for example i think that uh, maybe david lorla talking with rich hill or eno saris I mean, someone talking with rich hill and maybe Jeff has done work on, or maybe August did work on um, pitchers throwing even more secondary pitches than ever and the advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, I think what we kind of understand to some degree, maybe not the exact magnitude, is that the fastball is kind of like a point guard in basketball. If basketball still has point guards, I know basketball's changed a lot lately. But, like, you know, I grew up on watching John Stockton and Gary Payton and Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas and these guys who were, like, you know, distribute the ball and set up their teammates. And so, you know, for a long time, we would see, like, Sean Kemp, who was, like, a formidable part of my childhood. Um, a formable? Formidable. Formidable. Yeah. Okay, he, wasn't, yeah. he wasn't intimidating me. 
He was a uh, he was formidable. He was uh, he was a for, he was a formidable part of your basketball yeah. imagination. Yeah, sure. So he was a big part of my childhood. He got a, he scored a lot of points on dunks because Gary Payton would like throw him a great pass, and so Sean Kemp would get two points. But it was like we kind of all knew that that was Gary Payton's points. Like Gary Payton was the one who caused that basket. Sean Kemp's just the one who was tall enough to put it in the rim. Uh, but like with even more recent example, I think was when when Chris Paul played with Tyson Chandler. Right. It seemed to be a lot of alley-oop dunks. Yeah. And you say, well, this is not because Tyson Chandler is creating his own shot. Chris Paul is a really good passer. And so I think we kind of know that that's basically the fastball in this scenario, right? It's like um, the curveball and the slider and the changeup, these things often are swing and miss pitches, ground ball pitches. They're the ones getting outs with two strikes because when a pitcher gets ahead, they're going to throw something bendy that's harder for the pit, for the hitter to hit. And the hitter's more likely to chase it because he's got two strikes on him. He has to protect the zone. He can't. You know, hitters generally don't want to take called strike three, so they're going to expand their strike zone. But the way you get to strike two is often with fastball, right? Pitchers generally throw fastballs early in the count, and they throw breaking stuff later in the count. So if you don't have the fastball and you can't get ahead in the count, and unless you have an extremely good command, you can't just throw curveballs from pitch one because uh, most guys don't throw their curveballs in the zone all that often. The breaking ball uh, zone rate is much lower than the fastball zone rate. Um, it's hard to get into that position to get guys to swing and miss out of the zone. So you need the fastball to set up the other pitches. Uh, the question is how how much fastball do you need, right? Like historically, pitchers have thrown fastballs 60 to 70% of the time. Um, that might be too high. Maybe the number is actually closer to 40 or 50%. Maybe you just need it to just to get ahead to strike one, and then you can go to breaking balls. Or maybe you can throw a breaking ball and then go with a fastball. Maybe the fastball has been over overrepresented and overused because we're putting too much influence on the setup. But you do need one. If you throw 0% fastballs, no one's going to swing at your bendy stuff. I would like to make an analogy. I was listening on the radio to Westwood 1 to the game between maybe the New York Giants and uh, Green Bay Packers. And uh, one of the commentators was commenting on how many uh, how many runs the Giants were running, how many run plays they right. were calling. Yeah. And he said, well, this is going to set up the play-action pass. Right. Yeah, and then I thought, well, uh, I guess if you have a really good quarterback, and I think Elam is probably top 10 or something like that, you could probably – how many failures do you accept with the running game before you start throwing, right? right? And and I think that we've seen a similar shift in football and probably especially those teams that have the best – like a quarterback – Calling a calling a passing play is a little bit like calling a secondary pitch. Yeah, and I think what even like to go back to basketball. Cause I'm gonna switch away from football because I don't like football. Uh, yeah. You know, Fair I think enough. I saw some article. I don't remember who it was, but some coach was talking about how now we can track like the points per shot based on areas of the zone. And like in the 80s and 90s, the basic rule of offense was you go inside your giant post player who then tries to back down and hit some kind of like turnaround hook shot or you know shoot over two guys in the lane. And this was like the Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Elijah. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal was obviously very good at this. They just went through people. But this was basically how the game worked. It was inside out. And like occasionally you'd hope for a double team and then your big guy would kick out for a three-pointer. And like the coach was like, now that we can actually see the data, we see that this is stupid. Because the worst shot in basketball is your big guy shooting over two other big guys. And like you get like <laughs> .8 points per shot or something. Where if I just have like my little guy firing up threes from 35 feet, I get 1.3 points per shot. And so uh, I'm better off just taking taking the points. And so that's the basketball's transition to way that there aren't, 
you know, Shaquille O'Neal's and Patrick Ewing's anymore. There's now every big guy can shoot threes and like Kevin Love stands outside and just jacks up outside shots. Like this is how basketball has changed because we realized like, oh, this was an inefficient way to run the offense. We used to think you had to take bad shots in order to set up good shots. Nope, we should just take more good shots. So I wouldn't be shocked if the baseball kind of equilibrium was off and eventually we moved towards like, yeah, let's stop throwing bad fastballs to set up good curveballs. Let's just throw more good curveballs. I believe the coach you're citing is Dan D'Antoni, uh, who is the brother of Mike D'Antoni, coach of the Houston Rockets, formerly of the Knicks and Suns. Maybe. Uh, they, they tend to they tend to be he's the coach now of Marshall, is Dan D'Antoni. And I think he was he I think he had gotten a question to the effect of uh yeah, it seemed like you guys didn't want to go inside today. And he, he had a little bit of a rant. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess on Twitter, like, some hilarious answer of like, why did you want me to take bad shots or something? <laughs> yeah, he was not, he was not happy about it. And he, and he cited some very particular data. Um, yeah. and he also cited his brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anytime you can just be like, my brother says. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, of course, his brother's coach of a good team. Yeah. You know, so that helps. So it probably, probably yeah. does help. Yeah. Um, but having that sort of data, yeah. Basketball is, uh, and I think I, who maybe I talked about this with Eric Longenagin recently, or it might have been with you. Um, and someone sent me an article. It was I, let's see, it was reader Les Carter, I believe, sent me an article from Vice, looking at the how in basketball at least the mo- the, the the aesthetically the aesthetically pleasing version of the game is is also revealing itself to be the most efficient one, yeah. where you have guys who can kind of shoot from anywhere, and right. there's a lot more sort of movement. And, yeah. Um, no, it's a, that's a uh, that's a nice outcome of that. Uh, okay, um, before oh we, we oh yeah let's uh, let's get to this. Uh, today we released the Brewer Zips. We did. All and three people listening to this podcast are quite excited, including my former neighbor Patrick. Hi Patrick, how are you doing? No, no, but I'm also going to cite. Uh, I'm going to cite. The, I'm going to say the word the Cubs and the Giants oh. and the Nationals at the same time. Oh, we're not going to actually talk uh, about the Brewers. Sorry, Patrick. No, no, no. We are, we are going to talk about the Brewers. But here's here's one thing I noticed about the Brewers uh, in their their Zips projections is they have well they have zero field players and actually zero players total um, who have received a projection of three wins or greater. Yeah. However, they also have seventy five guys above one more. <laughs> Yeah, they have 20 players who are receive, who are projected to receive one or more wins. Yeah. And and for example, that's more than the Cubs yeah. and that's uh, that's more than the Nationals and it's yeah. twice as many as the Giants, right? And those were all playoff teams last year. They and have a lot of guys who are kind of useful. Who are kind of useful and, and and who are I should I think probably more useful to say who are projected to be kind of useful and the, the emphasis on the projection because of course these represent 50th percentile probable out, 50th percentile outcomes, right? And I probably the bet that David Stearns, uh, GM David Stearns is making is that, well, for those players for whom who hit the 75th percentile, they will be useful, yeah. right? And who in, in theory who continue to hit the, you know, to continue to hit a mark like that, like you then you have a baseball team, right? Because a year ago we would have thrown like Jonathan VR into that mix, right? As like a yeah, as a one win player, and then Jonathan VR had like a really good season, and now Jonathan VR looks like he might be like a not a cornerstone player, but like you know a solid average big leaguer who they can you know have for the next five years. Yes, yeah, the best projection on the team. Yeah, <laughs> VR does. Yeah, but and then, which and then is, which isn't a great spot to be in. You know your team's not good when your best player is Jonathan VR. 
Right, but as sort of a testament to the method and their commitment to this method is that Lewis Brinson yeah. has the second best projection, and he's not expected to begin the season in the major leagues. I don't know if I would say that Brinson is a testament. To the, I mean, Brinson's a testament to the method of they had an all star and they traded him. <laughs> like that's like the classic rebuild. Right, no, like, see, trade away fine. your good player. So Keon Broxton, I yeah. think they received. Broxton they got would be him a better for, example. Yeah. For very little, they got Eric Thames for yeah. almost nothing. Yeah. Now you're saying his last name because that's the river in England. Yeah, I what think he saying? calls it Thames. I think he says it's Thames. Is there a, is there any situation which it's acceptable to ignore how someone tells you to pronounce their name? Um, no, no. no. Okay. It's really they get to say it. they get to it. they get to do it. When I was in North Carolina, like they have weird pronunciations of towns there. So like not that far from us uh, was a town called Advance, but they called yeah. it Advance. And if you tried to say you know Advance, like the the actual word in the English language, they yelled at you and they're like, no, our town is called Advance. It would be kind right. of it, it would be dickish to be like, no, you live in Advance and you're pronouncing it wrong. Like they were pronouncing also, it wrong, but they get that that's their right. People uh people I can tell you or people to whom I'm related who live in New England, uh still do not despite the fact that I lived there for three years and said the word often, uh m- most of my family does not say the word Oregon correctly. Yeah. A lot uh, I think call, most of the country doesn't say the word Oregon correctly. Right, they say Oregon, Oregon and yeah, I yeah. even though I've heard other people say it correctly, uh say say Nevada, I insist on saying Nevada. Yeah, I think that's actually one that can go either way. Okay. Yeah. All right. That one's less believe, wrong, and I think that one's more taste. Do you say Montana? No. To, instead of Montana? That would be definitely wrong. Can you give us a brief update on – on um, this would be the last thing you have to say – on corner outfield sluggers and yeah. what is going on with the market right there? There aren't any. <laughs> well, at least not in left field. So I wrote an ESPN piece this week because Jeff Sullivan's on vacation, traipsing around Chile. Uh, actually, he might have gone on from Chile to Patagonia now. Uh, traipsing around South America, so I had to write his ESPN piece. So I wrote about how left fielders got out hit by second baseman last year, which is, as a guy who grew up watching, you know, giant left field sluggers like Gary Sheffield and Manny Ramirez and like this was the ideal left fielder and second basemen were you know slap hitters and um, you know guys who hit and run and you know bunt and like no one no second baseman are any good except for like Roberto Alomar who's like the one good hitting second baseman or Carlos Baerga there were only a couple of those guys Jeff Kent I guess but now it's like second basemen are uh, really good Brian Dozier hit 40 homers last year Daniel Murphy was third in the MVP because he hit 350 like second basemen can hit and second and left fielders cannot and it's a kind of an interesting change in baseball. And but in the, but they're also a bunch of corner fielder like corner maybe they're not all outfielders but just corner men in general maybe corner maybe they're first base DHs who are available is what I really mean to say. Yeah, like, I mean, is, is, Mark, is Mark, Mark Trumbo, Trumbo an outfielder? Yeah, no. is he an outfielder? No. All right. <coughs> no, Mark Trumbo's a first baseman. He's a first baseman. Okay. Yeah. Jose Bautista? He's an outfielder, but maybe an outfielder who needs to DH sometimes. What is the the gap between what Trumbo um, and his and his team maybe exp- were hoping to receive and what they're likely to receive? Because Craig Edwards wrote about him last week, and the, uh, it does not appear to look good for him. 
Well, I think he's going to still get a multi-year deal. Um, I think uh, the Trumbo's not going to be one of these guys who's like, he's not going to get the Ian Desmond contract or something. Like, he's going to get, you know, 3 and 36 or something like that. I think there were talks at the beginning of the winter that he wanted, like, 480. That was crazy. That was never going to happen. Uh, so whether that was realistic or not, or they were just shooting for the moon, who knows. I think, like, he's going to get something in that, you know, 10 to 15 million a, ra- a year range for three or four years. And that's, you know, Probably what he's worth if he's a first baseman. He's not worth much if he's an outfielder. But if he's a first baseman and he's an average player, that's what average players go for. That's what Josh Reddick got as 452. You know, that's basically what he should get somewhere in there. Okay. All right. That's. I just want an update on that. And then yep. you gave me you gave me uh, even something I didn't expect, and I I appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, you've fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. I'm happy about that. Okay. All right. Uh, so I say thank you. You're welcome. And continue by saying uh, that uh, that has been. Here's how I say: it. I say that has been uh, managing editor Fangraphs Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. I don't know. I think I might have done it wrong that time again. <laughs> okay.